This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. You are listening to part two of A Mother's Wrath, so if you haven't listened to part one, you're going to need to jump back and do that. We are just jumping back into this case after we finished talking about the at-home do-it-yourself exorcism that Teresa was performing on her daughter Susan in front of a bunch of her other kids, and we're just kind of diving right back into it, so... Here we go. Teresa's abuse got more and more severe as the girls grow older. Robert recalls that the only time his mom was ever almost normal was when she had money. But whenever the money ran out, she returned to the evil person she was at her core. Teresa had put on a lot of weight by this point. She's almost 300 pounds now, something she was not used to. It turns out that she does have a disease which makes it hard for her to lose weight, but she makes sure to place all the blame on Susan. The reason Teresa kept gaining weight was actually because Susan was responsible for this disease with her witchcraft because Susan wanted her mom to be heavy. So Teresa starts forcing Susan to eat some really disgusting and unappetizing meals, and she has to eat a lot. Each time that Susan throws up food, Teresa would then force her to eat her own throw up. One of Susan's brothers remembers that his mom felt really good about hurting Susan because Susan was a witch. So in her mind, she's this hero for saving all of them from whatever demon possessed Susan. He said she could release her anger onto her daughter and at the same time feel great about it. So the focus shifts almost solely to Susan for a time. The abuse is all being perpetrated on her. It was weird because sometimes Teresa and Susan would actually seem like they were in a normal mother-daughter relationship. Like, they seemed to have a genuine bond, but then Teresa would flip out. One thing Robert remembers is that they liked to listen to music and dance together. Teresa actually started letting her daughter get drunk by age 13 when they would do this. So terrible parenting. But one time while the girls were dancing, Robert was there on the couch and Teresa was dancing in her underwear. And Robert says to his mom, you know, you look like a slut doing that. Immediately, he regrets his words. To this day, he says he has no idea why he would even say that. He was only 11 years old. I mean, obviously, he's repeating how the kids are talked to. Like Howard, he was a product of his environment. But the reaction he feared was not the one that came. Teresa didn't beat Robert for saying this. Instead, she started using her hands to cover herself up, and she told Robert that she would never dance again. He has now taken away the last thing in the world that brings her happiness. He said sorry over and over again, but Teresa would never let him forget it. She really did not ever dance again. Robert said she could make Jesus Christ feel guilty. 
And these dancing sessions never lasted long. They usually ended in a fight, and Teresa would quickly turn against Susan, who would just taunt her, saying that she's still friends with Chet and all the witches in his coven. By this point, the intelligent Susan had dropped out of school by eighth grade, and Teresa no longer trusted her outside of the home. She couldn't allow Susan to go to these witches' meetings, so she locks her inside. Teresa would do checks on Susan at all hours of the night. One time, she even finds a cellophane bag that had hair and dried flakes of skin inside. Teresa smacks Susan to wake her up, asking what this bag's purpose is. And Susan says, mm, you know what, Chet actually needed that for one of his spells. The longer she was locked inside, the more desperate Susan was to escape. And one day, she takes her shot. Susan runs away to a receiving home. This is a home for troubled or unwanted kids. It was kind of like a juvie. There are 79 beds, and kids would stay anywhere from days to weeks until the home could find them a permanent placement. Terry had actually gone to one later on, and she said that it was hell inside that home. But this was Susan's chance to escape. Teresa tells the other kids that Susan ran off because she is a demon, and she's not actually Susan. But the other kids wonder if Teresa actually dropped Susan off there to get rid of her. While she's there, Susan asks the workers to call her dad, Bob Knorr, and she wants him to come pick her up. Sadly, he never gets the call. He says he would have brought her into his home, but the worker told Susan that Bob didn't want her. With this, she runs away from the receiving home and starts using sex work for money when she meets a guy that would call himself her pimp boyfriend. Susan is doing drugs and her life on the street is bad, but it couldn't be worse than the life she had at home. This boyfriend of hers actually goes with her to Teresa's house with some of his friends and they're all screaming to Teresa that they're going to kill everyone in that home, which like, whoa, just threaten Teresa maybe? The kids have gone through enough, but he's there somewhat trying to defend Susan. She must have told him about the abuse her mom had put her through. And this confrontation is so loud that it draws their neighbors outside to check on what's going on. This was the kind of attention Teresa hated. Susan somehow ends up back in the receiving home, but it doesn't last long because Teresa receives a call that Susan had forced another girl into sexual acts. They tell Teresa that she needs to come pick Susan up and take her home. With this, Susan has a full-blown meltdown. She's screaming that her mom is terribly abusive and their home was like a concentration camp. She pleads with them not to send her back. But Teresa already loaded Terry up into the car and was on her way. When they arrive, the staff asks Teresa about these abuse allegations. But Teresa chuckles and says that Susan is just troubled and she's lying so that she can just be out here running amok. And when the staff looks to Terry, she backs her mom up, calling Susan a liar. At that time, Terry had been convinced that her by her mom that Susan was the bad guy for sharing with strangers what went on behind the closed doors of their home. William says that him and his siblings all failed Susan. Over and over, they just couldn't protect her. They honestly place a lot of blame on themselves for what is to come, but they weren't responsible for protecting their sister. They were minors. They could have never stopped their mom from hurting them. 
they were the ones who were failed by all the adults in their lives. Susan is brought home and handcuffed to the headboard of a bed. She was never allowed to go back to school again. She was never allowed outside of the home again. And Teresa tells her that if Susan thought she knew what was abuse was before this day, she was now going to show her what it really is. So Teresa slips on some leather gloves, which help protect her hands from the beating she would give. Afterwards, Teresa made each child of hers slip the leather gloves on and take turns hitting Susan themselves. Susan never tried to run again. The 5 foot 8, 150 pound sandy haired girl finally had her spirit broken. Robert said that Susan had nowhere to go even if she wanted to run. Better the devil you know than the one you don't. Remember, at this time, Howard does not live at the home. He's on his own with his girlfriend, Connie. And one night, William is gone working or playing sports. So it's just Sheila, Susan, Robert, and Terry at home. Teresa is throwing her usual tantrum about Susan making her gain weight with these witch spells. While she is ranting, she is also hitting Susan with a belt. All of the sudden, the house is filled with the blast of a gunshot. Now, there are two differing stories here. Terry says that Teresa shot Susan. She says that after the gun goes off, Teresa is apologizing to Susan and asking her daughter to forgive her. She recalls that Susan said to Teresa that she loves her and she forgives her. But Robert remembers things different. They were both young. They're the two youngest. Susan is about 16 years old when she shot and Terry is four years younger than her. So I'd say she's around 12. And then Robert is about two years younger than Susan. So he's around 14. Well, Robert says that it was not his mom who shot Susan. He says that it was his youngest sister, Terry, who shot Susan. And then in the documentary William did with Evil Lives Here, he actually says that he was in the kitchen with Teresa when Terry shot the gun at Susan. But in the book, it's said that only Robert and his sisters were home. The author spoke with Terry and Robert firsthand for writing the book, but the documentary worked with William firsthand. However, the documentary was made much, much, much later, like many years following all the crimes. So I don't really know. For some reason, all of this is kind of muddled. If Terry did shoot Susan, I would think that it had to have happened while Teresa was beating on Susan with the belt. Was she actually trying to shoot her mom? I don't know, and honestly, neither does Terry. When Dennis McDougall, author of Mother's Day, tells Terry that Robert says she was the one who shot Susan, Terry then says, I don't know, I don't remember. So if Robert's version is true, he says that he takes the gun from Terry and he wipes it down while Terry is in hysterics. Then he says he gets in trouble by Teresa for wiping the gun down because now she can't prove that Terry is the one who shot her sister. If Terry's version is true, she says that Susan grabs her chest after being shot. The bullet had entered just under her left breast and immediately her mom's temperament had changed and she goes into nurse mode. Remember, she had worked as a nurse's aide. Teresa then removes Susan's clothes, looking for the wound, and she finds that the bullet entered, but it did not go through her body. There was no exit wound. Instead, it embedded in the skin of Susan's back. Susan was then laid into the bathtub by Teresa, where she was kept for a month. 
she couldn't take her to the hospital because then she would be questioned about why her daughter was shot and they probably would have found a lot of old injuries as well. So Teresa uses pills she had lying around the house to treat Susan herself, and the kids were tasked with bringing in meals while Teresa changed the bandages on the wound. Susan was forced to go to the bathroom right there where she laid in the bathtub, and the other kids would wash it down the drain. This actually is not how Susan is murdered. She would live for almost one more year. The gun she sh was shot with was a 22 caliber pistol, and my husband actually showed me the bullet that would go inside this gun. In fact, he used it as a teaching moment to show me a bunch of different bullets and the differences between them all and how they all work. He cannot handle the sadness of true crime, so we do not talk about these cases together, but he does get excited to teach me about guns and bullets and how they work when I'm trying to get a better understanding of a crime. I'm always like, hey, what does this gun do? Hey, what does this bullet do? That he'll talk to me about. The true crime stuff, it makes him too sad. So anyway, he shows me this bullet and it does make sense the bullet susan was shot with is tiny and it isn't meant to blow open a hole on impact so it simply went right in and then gets stuck thankfully it didn't hit any vital organs and susan was able to make a full recovery if only she was saved during this second chance before it was too late even after Susan was shot and nursed back to health, she doesn't run. Teresa lets off the abuse just long enough to allow Susan to survive. But once she is healed, Teresa is right back at it. She continues her rants about, you know, Susan's witch capades. She continues handcuffing Susan within the home. She continues to force feed Susan, but she starts resisting this. When Susan would eat the food put in front of her, Teresa would beat the back of her head so badly that Susan would usually end up passing out before she would take another bite. Her siblings worry about her because after passing out, she was really hard to wake up. She would lay there for hours or even days. By this time, Teresa is also forcing her three underage daughters to provide sex work in order to bring home money and help pay the bills. Teresa had gotten this idea after Susan and Sheila were cleaning at a man's home. It's this man that Teresa took care of. He's like a neighbor and he needed some at-home health care. And since she had worked as a nursing aide before, she offers this elderly neighbor some care in exchange for payment. Well, the girls are there cleaning one day without Teresa and they come home laughing about how Susan's breast had fallen out of her shirt. They thought it was funny because they said the old man almost had a heart attack. But Teresa encourages her daughters to try this again. Just make it look like an accident and see what the man does. From here, Teresa trafficked the girls to pedophiles willing to pay for sex with a minor. Susan turns 17 years old during this year and she starts feeling like she might be close to freedom. She starts talking with her siblings about her dreams to leave the home. And as devastating as this is, the night she spent away from home doing sex work were the better times in her life. It hurts me to even say that because being trafficked by her mom as a minor is major abuse in and of itself. 
But Teresa was so brutal at home that Susan would tell her sisters she actually enjoyed talking with the men she was with on those nights. It gave her this taste of life beyond her childhood home. But Teresa gets wind of Susan's fantasies, and her wrath is unleashed. How dare Susan dream about moving away from her? Teresa screams that Susan was using the sex work as a control play, and she thinks she is going to use it to escape. After she rants, Susan receives the worst abuse she had to date. Outside of literally being shot, Susan was weak and she was laying on the floor already, so Teresa walks over to her and she actually starts standing on her throat. The other children are silently panicking because Susan is convulsing on the floor. After this, Teresa calls for a short truce with Susan. She's like, look, let's get along. Even though it's 1000% only Teresa's fault that she doesn't get along with any of her children. But this doesn't last long because Teresa obviously gets satisfaction out of hurting her children. Susan even tries to convince her mom during this time that she's no longer a witch and that she had found God. But Teresa never believed her. I think Susan was scared for her life by this time, so pushing her mom to spiral seemed dangerous now. Like, it was no longer fun to, you know, try and bother Teresa by saying she's a witch. So she's like, look, mom, I'm not a witch. I found God. This was not real. But, you know, when Teresa doesn't believe it and she becomes frustrated with Susan yet again, all bets are off with this truce. Teresa ends up chucking a pair of scissors at Susan as she is literally trying to get away from her mom, and the scissors stick into Susan's back. Of course, in Teresa's mind, it's all Susan's fault. But the physical abuse pauses for a moment while Teresa cares for the wound. During this time, Susan sweet-talks her mom, trying to get on good grounds before finding the courage to beg her mom, please allow me to leave. She's like, look, I promise you, I will not tell anyone about anything that has happened to me in this house. I swear, all I need is for a ticket to Alaska. Susan thought that if only she could get to Alaska, she would be free. She probably wanted to go all the way there because... It was the furthest she could get from her mom. Like, I, I mean, at least it's separated by another country, not necessarily the furthest, but, you know, it's fully separated by Canada. So she really wants to make it to Alaska. She figures she could make a living for herself there through sex work. She just desperately wants out of this house. And surprisingly, Teresa agrees. A weight is lifted off of Susan's shoulders. Hope quickly flashes before her eyes until Teresa said, there's just one condition. You have to let me remove that bullet. Teresa didn't dare allow her daughter to walk out of this home in fear that if she ever had it removed, the police could trace it back to Teresa. Susan was scared. She didn't want this bullet cut out of her at home, but she reluctantly agrees in exchange for her freedom. This is her ticket out. So Teresa pulls out peroxide and gauze and an X-Acto knife, and then she yells to Robert to come down to the kitchen. He is ordered to cut the bullet out while the other kids help hold Susan down. 
there was a little black mark on Susan's back where the bullet had rested. He could feel the lump if he ran his fingers on like over her back on top of where that bullet sat. So Robert knew where to make the cut. There's actually not a lot of blood as they get the bullet out. So Teresa uses this moment to let her kids know that Susan is not bleeding much because she's actually a demon. So she's basically already dead. Any opportunity Teresa could take to convince her other children that Susan was demonic, she would. Following this unsanitary at-home surgery, the wound becomes infected. Teresa is pumping Susan full of random antibiotics that she had left all over the house, as well as anti-inflammatory medicine she had. But the next day, Susan is so out of it that she's hallucinating, she can't eat, and she just lays on the kitchen floor. She's in and out of consciousness. Susan's deteriorating condition seemed so severe to her sister, Sheila. Sheila can't stop crying. She's begging Teresa to please take Susan to the hospital. Teresa scoffs, reminding Sheila that if she took Susan to the hospital, then she would go to jail. So why would she do that? I don't know, Teresa, because she's your daughter and you don't want her to die. Anyway, Susan ends up in this coma-like state because Teresa is far too selfish to take her to the hospital. And Teresa can see that the abuse has finally been pushed too far. Instead of going to the hospital, Teresa chooses herself. On July 15th, she packs all of Susan's clothes and she instructs Robert and William to load Susan into the backseat of her car. They question where they're taking their sick sister, but they're only told that they have to go take care of something. I'm sure that all the kids are hoping that maybe Teresa was actually going to go to the hospital and save Susan, but that's not what she was doing. The boys have to sit on each side of Susan to prop her up while Terry sits on top of her. Sheila is also in the back seat squished next to one of her brothers. Teresa starts driving and the kids cannot tell where they're going. Robert just remembers the strong smell of gasoline. But all of the sudden, the car starts making a weird noise. And Teresa quickly says, you know, you know what, never mind. My car is acting weird. We are going back home. So that night, they're back inside their house. They've moved Susan and her clothes back in as well. Teresa had ample opportunity to change her mind and do the right thing. But the next evening on July 16th, 1984, she orders the boys to do the same thing as they had the night before. Go load Susan into the car. This time, though, Teresa already has Susan's mouth covered with tape and her wrists are also taped together. The youngest daughter, Terry, is not allowed to come. She stays home alone while William, Robert, and Sheila get into the car with Susan. She's barely conscious, and while they drive, Sheila and Susan are whispering to each other. Teresa can't make out what they're saying, so she just screams at them to shut up. Those whispers were the last thing Susan's siblings would ever hear from her. Teresa makes her way to Lake Tahoe, where they park next to the Squaw Creek Bridge. The boys are told to take Susan out of the car, so they do. Teresa goes to the trunk, and she grabs a gas can. Robert and William drag Susan down to the creek bed. Teresa hauls the bag of Susan's clothes down and throws it next to her. 
At this point, Susan's brothers zip up her jacket, hoping that it will help keep her warm. They assume Teresa is making them leave her here to die. So, you know, they're like, oh, maybe if she stays warm, she's going to live. But then Teresa starts dousing Susan and her things with gasoline. William is super confused. What are you doing? But she snarls back at him that he better shut up or the other kids will hear him. And if they do, she will beat the shit out of him. Robert had already started making his way back to the car, and then his mom follows behind when William lights a match and throws it onto Susan. Teresa obviously forced him to do this as some sort of way to take the blame off of her. But William is like 15 or 16 years old at this time. He's still a minor that is living at a home with an extremely abusive mom, and he really had no control over his own life. If he didn't do what she said, what's to say that he would not die next? Robert and Sheila watch out the window as the flames light up through the break in the trees. Sheila's entire body is shaking, but everyone is too scared to cry. There is nothing but silence in that car as Teresa and her three kids drive away from the crime scene. As they near their home, Teresa breaks this silence by letting the kids know that Sheila's death was a sacrifice to God, who actually thinks, like she's saying God actually thinks they did a good thing here. Teresa tries to reassure them by saying she saw Susan Soul leave her body while the gas was being poured on her. So what she's trying to reassure them of is Susan was not burned alive. Her soul left her body before she went up in flames and Teresa saw it. But after Susan is discovered the next morning on July 17, 1984, an autopsy confirms that while Susan did have life-threatening injuries, she died as a result of being burned alive. This broke Detective John Fitzgerald's heart. All he had hoped when he showed up to this scene was that this young girl was dead before the fire started. It was a punch to his gut, finding out that this was not the case. Fitzgerald was fairly new to the Placer County Sheriff's Department, and he had never seen anything like what he witnessed that morning. He would always remember her golden hair and pale skin that was only intact on one small section of her face that had not been burnt. The yellow nylon windbreaker that her brothers had zipped up for her was now melted onto her. The police investigation could not connect Jane Doe number 485884 to any missing persons cases nearby. Without being able to confirm who she was, the case quickly goes cold. Back at Teresa's apartment in Sacramento, William had gone straight to his room to sleep. They had pulled an all-nighter getting rid of Susan. Physically, mentally, and emotionally, he was drained. It feels like he's only asleep for one minute when Teresa is shaking him awake, screaming at him that he is never allowed to tell anyone about what happened. And if he did, he was next. Her mood changes almost instantly from anxious rage to manipulation. She stares at William with wide eyes, admiring his blonde hair and blue eyes. And then she leans into him saying softly that he can't ever leave the house. If he tried, she would have to kill him because, quote, I can't take not having my kids. 
oh, okay, you cannot take not having your kids. However, you can live forever without them because you murdered them. Totally, totally makes sense. She is infuriating. So a few days later, Teresa knows she needs to let Howard know what happened. If she didn't say something first, he was going to start wondering about his sister when he came over to visit. So she picks Howard and his girlfriend Connie up one day and she's like, look, I had to take Susan up in the mountains and we had to set her on fire. The reason is because she was actually under the devil's control and he was like sucking the life out of her anyway. I'm sure both of their stomachs drop and they're at a loss for words when Teresa continues on with this crazy tale. She tells them that when Susan was still alive and working with witchcraft, she told Teresa that her brother Howard would have a baby that was born on Valentine's Day and that this baby would be a boy and he would have a heart defect. Teresa says that since Susan was a witch, she was actually obligated to steal Howard and Connie's soon-to-be baby and sacrifice him to demons. Teresa explains that Susan would have had to do this because Howard's baby boy was going to be the first great-grandchild of James Cross, and James Cross was a descendant of David, which are apparently the good guys according to the Bible. So since Susan was a witch, she just had to get rid of all these descendants. Now, Teresa ends this rant by basically saying, you're welcome to Connie and Howard, because now that Teresa Teresa is taking care of Susan, their baby is going to be safe. They both kind of just go with it for now because they're so freaked out by what Teresa is confessing to. Honestly, they don't even really believe her until Connie finds a newspaper with an article detailing the discovery of a charred body near Lake Tahoe. Tears roll down Howard's cheeks as he reads the article, and then he asks Connie not to say anything to anyone. I can see why Connie goes along with this while she's with Howard. Unfortunately, he was extremely abusive towards her and she was probably scared of him. I do not understand why she never says anything later in life when they're not together, but you know, I just don't know. It's sad when she's with Howard because uh, it's hard. I don't think Howard is fully to blame for how he turned out. Obviously, their life was so screwed up. I wish he didn't become the things he did. I wish he hadn't sexually abused his siblings. I wish he hadn't grown up to be abusive to his own wife and his own kids. But I feel a small sliver of empathy just knowing what he endured as a child. That's kind of how I feel about all the children in this family that struggle in their adult lives. I wish they grew up and broke the curse of generational trauma, but it is easier said than done when you come from the life that they did. Don't get me wrong, this sliver of empathy is really only, like, depending on what they do later in their life, this empathy is really only for what they went through as children, and I wish that they came out of it as adults. Um, If they don't do anything horrible in their adult life, I feel bad for them all around. Um, But some of the crimes committed in their adult life are hard to forgive. But, you know, it's just, it's a gray area. It's really sad because they came from this awful, awful background. Anyway, 
Connie and Howard, they do end up having a baby boy in February the following year. He was not born on Valentine's Day, but he was born on February 1st, 1985. He does have a heart murmur, and this made Howard and Connie question if what Teresa told them about Susan's predictions of their first child did come from her witchcraft. Now, they're convinced that their son is unsafe as long as Chet Harris's witch coven is operating. Howard actually decides to head to Rio Linda and stay with some friends while he looks around for his mom's ex-husband, Chet. So he wants to go up, he wants to confront him, but he never does actually confront Chet on this trip. However, he tells all of his friends that Chet was a dangerous man who lived off of drinking baby's blood and that he chanted to pagan spirits and disemboweled animals and humans. Of course, everyone is officially freaked out. I'm not sure if they're scared of Chet or if they're scared of Howard's ranting, but it's clear Howard was starting to take after his mom's neurotic ideas. Now, when Connie has her second son with Howard, things get really bad. Their first baby was named after Howard, so everyone just called him Junior. And he's around one years old when Miles James Sanders is born on March 25th, 1986. So this baby was just a couple years, was born just a couple years after Susan's murder. It's a month after Miles is born that Connie is breastfeeding him in another room while she has Howard watching over Junior. The one-year-old is crying, and instead of taking care of his son, Howard decides to beat him. Howard is holding him upside down by the leg and punching him in the head and face when Connie tries to intervene. His rage turns from their baby and onto Connie. She pleads with him to calm down, and finally he does. He tells her that he doesn't understand why he just did that. Thankfully, a friend of Connie stops by the home shortly after this, and the friend is a nurse. So when Connie shows her the injuries Junior suffered, she's like, you absolutely are taking him to the hospital no matter what. Junior would end up being diagnosed with a concussion and eye retina damage. Howard is arrested, and those in the court system are sickened to see what happened to this baby. They describe it as the worst abuse of a child they had ever seen. He is sentenced to only 90 days in jail and then given three years of probation. Honestly, that sentence is too light. The system has always gone easy on sentencing involving children. I'm sick of it. I'm over it. Like, I'm sorry, but people that hurt kids deserve more time than pretty much all other criminals. The sentences for crimes involving children should be up there with the murders. Sometimes they don't even give murders decent sentence decent sentences, if I'm being honest especially when people murder children, actually. It's just, I'm so over it. The system is backwards. To me, hurting children and killing children, especially your own children, is the worst thing you can do. So, I digress. That sentence, it's too light. And following his jail stint, Howard moves back in with his mom. Eventually, he moves out again and he reconnects with Connie, but that doesn't last long because he is arrested on battery charges once again after he beats her up. 
Once he's out of jail this time, some of Connie's friends take matters into their own hands, and they serve Howard with a brutal beating that lands him a lengthy hospital stay. Later, when Teresa is arrested, Howard and his ex-wife Connie would talk with police and confirm what they knew about Teresa's abuse and their suspicions of what she had done to her girls. Since then, Howard seems to have gotten his life a little more in check. He ends up trying to fight for shared custody of the children he shares with Connie, but she was not going to let that happen, so she runs off with the kids and never told Howard where she was going. I'm not sure if he ever reconnected with her or his sons, but he does go to culinary school in an effort to become a chef. He remarries. I heard he moved to Michigan, where it seems that he's kept his life pretty private since his family's murder trials. Now, going back to just after Susan's murder, things between William and Teresa get tense. He hated what his mom made him do to his sister, and he was sick of living in fear. After some arguments about Teresa believing that William is spreading rumors that he pays for all the family's bills and arguments about how Teresa was treating Sheila, William snaps. He asks his mom if she's trying to kill Sheila the same way she did with Susan. He said it felt good to stand up to Teresa and he was not going to let her walk all over him anymore. He decides to leave the home and move in with a girlfriend. He stays far away from Teresa, remembering her threat to end his life if he left. He only really comes around the family a couple more times, one of those being when his grandpa Jimmy Cross passed away. After that, he mostly never returns. This was the best he had ever felt in his life. He no longer had to hand every dollar he made over to Teresa. He no longer was being abused and he was no longer being forced to participate in her abuse of his siblings that he really loved. He would miss them when he left, but there was no turning back once he made his escape. The summer that Susan is murdered, Teresa's relationship with Robert also gets shaky. I mean, how could it not? These children witnessed her kill one of them. At 15 years old, Robert starts spending a lot of time with an upstairs neighbor in their apartment complex. Ironically, her name is also Connie, and she's a full-grown woman, but they do start a sexual relationship. Robert was spending all this time with Connie, trying to just escape the hell of his own home, and then... Terry, the youngest daughter, she would also go to Connie's apartment and have talks with her, and she makes the mistake of telling their mom about a comment Connie made about all the Doritos Robert eats when he's over at her house. She jokingly asked Terry, like, hey, does Robert get enough to eat at home because he's eating all of my chips every time he comes over here? Well, when Teresa hears this, she loses it. She tells Robert that it's an embarrassment to her when he makes other people think that his life at home is bad or like he's not getting enough to eat, which like Teresa, it should be an embarrassment to you. And um, it is the case, like they're telling the truth. And if you're embarrassed about it, change it. But she doesn't do that. Robert is no longer allowed to see Connie, which it's like uh, another hard situation because Her apartment for Robert is an escape from the actual hell that his life is at home. 
but he also should not be hanging out with this adult woman and she definitely shouldn't be having sex with him when he is 15 years old so like neither his home nor connie's house are really healthy environments for him to be but at least at connie's house i guess he's not being beaten but he is being abused sexually it's hard she's twice his age at the time that they're hooking up like it's not a good situation and Robert despised his mom, but he does listen to her when she tells him that he can no longer see Connie because he knows the consequences if he doesn't listen to Teresa. He continues to work two jobs, bringing home every single dollar he makes to his mom. Terry also can't stand her mom following Susan's murder. She might not have been there the night Susan was lit on fire, but she definitely heard about it from her siblings, and she saw everything that happened to Susan leading up to that dreadful night. In her fear, she tries to do her best tiptoeing around her mom, but even at the young age of 13, she knows that she doesn't stand a good chance of making it out of this home alive. Now that Susan was gone, Teresa had started focusing all her anger onto Sheila. Sheila was never let out of the home. Like truly, she never went outside. So one day she actually is allowed to go out. She's allowed to ride her bike to the store in a errand for Teresa. And this is a rarity. Well, on that bike ride, Sheila is hit by a hearse that is backing out of a local mortuary. She's frazzled as the officials gather around her and they're helping her up. I'm sure they themselves were very panicked, like they just hit this young girl off of her bike. But Sheila is like, I'm okay, like I'm fine, and she heads straight home. She comes home and tells her family about what happened. And Robert and Terry think it's sad, but they also kind of find it comical because what are the odds that Sheila would get hit by a car on her one and only venture out of the house and into the world? The siblings all laugh about it together, but Teresa does not think it's so funny. She wasn't worried about Sheila. She was worried that Sheila said more to the adults who helped her. She was worried that Sheila might have spilled her secrets. So Teresa decides that when Sheila was hit, her soul was actually knocked right out of her body. She tells her kids that Sheila died that day and a demon took over. This sounds familiar, right? Well, after this incident, Sheila's beatings become worse. Sheila ends up helping her mom with a cleaning of this local man's trailer. This man was Lucia King. And there's another man who lives in the neighborhood that actually catches Sheila's eye. This man went by the nickname Chief. He was Native American with long braided hair. And Sheila loved his braids and she falls in love with Chief. She even starts trying to impress him by braiding her own hair or wearing a headband with a feather in it. And the two do become close. Teresa doesn't catch on that Sheila is crushing on Chief because Sheila would go and she would clean for Lucia King sometimes on her own. And then she would also hang out with Chief. But Teresa thinks Sheila is trying to get attention from Lucia King, who the, this guy that they're cleaning for. Teresa becomes convinced that Sheila is doing extra work for Lucia and that she was secretly stashing money away to make a run from home. Again, this sounds familiar with how she started to think of Susan. Things got even worse when Teresa ends up getting an STD. 
I guarantee she gets this STD from her own sexual activity, but she blames it on Sheila, saying that she must have gotten this STD from the toilet seat that Sheila used. So now Teresa is forcing Sheila to eat large amounts of food. And when she would throw up, she would have to eat that as well. But Sheila was even more defiant than Susan. Howard's ex-wife, Connie, said that Sheila was really the only child that was ever brave enough to talk back to Teresa. She refused to eat whatever her mom placed in front of her. Like, absolutely not, no. Teresa got so upset about this that she actually takes the spoon herself and she starts ramming it into Sheila's mouth. But Sheila continues to defy her mom. She will not open her mouth. And this results with Teresa breaking Sheila's front tooth. And during an argument about Sheila refusing to eat, Teresa gets really mad after Sheila kicks Teresa in the shins. Which I'm like, hell yeah, you go girl. Like, you kick her. But sadly, this would be the beginning of the end. Teresa demands that Robert wrestle Sheila into the linen closet and lock her inside. Sheila is screaming and crying. She's begging her family to let her out, but Teresa refuses. Instead, she stuffs the cracks of the closet with towels to muffle Sheila's cries. This closet is tiny, two foot wide and maybe four foot deep at most. Terry's heart broke each day as she passed the closet where Sheila was locked. Teresa didn't allow the kids to take Sheila any food or water. They were only allowed to give her beer. So one day, Teresa is gone, and Terry opens up the closet door to give Sheila beer. She tells her that she's so sorry for what's going on, but when she hears her mom pull up, she panics and shuts Sheila back into the closet. She would feel guilty about this for the rest of her life. Sheila remains in this closet for one to two weeks without the door being opened. When the smell of decomposition starts leaking into the apartment, Teresa knows that her daughter has died. This is when Teresa makes a desperate call to William. Remember, he never really comes home after his grandpa's funeral, but she says that his sister needs his help. When he shows up, Teresa makes sure to let him know that the state he is about to see Sheila in is actually his fault. She says that Sheila would have never been punished if William hadn't left the family home and walked out on all of them. She makes William crack the door to the closet open. In there, he finds Sheila in a fetal position. She has her hands tied behind her back, obviously the work of Teresa to keep her in there, because at this time, Sheila is 20 years old, but Teresa had never let her leave. William remembers that the blood had settled in Sheila's legs, and this sight was unlike anything he had ever seen. She's already so decomposed that her nose is missing from her face. He stands there in shock before Teresa smacks him and tells him that it's him and Robert that need to move Sheila out of the closet. William will forever have the fear of doing this seared into his memory. Teresa had grabbed a cardboard box and lined it with pillow cases. This is where they would place Sheila. And William recalls Sheila's flesh actually sticking to the floor around her. It pulled off of her body as they lifted her. The sound and the smell would haunt the boys for life. 
William remembers there being a little bit of blood inside the closet, but Robert remembers the closet being filled with blood that was also spattered on the walls. He thought that Sheila's throat had been cut, but when she's found, she is so decomposed that this could not be determined. It's always been said that she was starved to death. The cardboard box is loaded into Teresa's car, and she orders Terry to stay home alone again, just like she had with Susan. Robert and William join her to dispose of Sheila. We know from the beginning of this episode that she is dumped at the campground ran by Hazel and Elmer Barber. Elmer finds the box that she is in, opening it to find her body. But before Teresa stopped there at the campground, she had actually just pulled off the highway and told her sons to dig a hole. They're behind their mom's car using shovels to dig when a police car pulls up behind them. They panic, they throw the shovels into the back of the car, the boys are sure that the smell of decomposition was going to tip off the officer. He, Robert, is like freaking out and he's like, something nefarious is going on and this officer knows it. But the officer just asks what they're doing off the side of the road. Teresa tells him that her boys just needed a quick bathroom break and he's like, okay, well, you need to get them back in the car and keep driving because you're not allowed to be pulled off on this part of the highway. With their hearts racing, the trio drives off, and Teresa drives aimlessly around in the woods until coming to a dirt road, and she's just taking random turns to find somewhere very remote. They end up coming to the spot where they would dump Sheila. This time, she tells them to quickly unload the box and hop back into the car. Teresa washes all of the clothes they were wearing and all of Sheila's clothes, and they donate them to Goodwill. Terry is forced to clean the closet. She will never forget scrubbing her sister's flesh off of the floor. After this, William goes back to wherever he was living, and he never comes back. When Sheila was found by Elmer Barber, he calls for the Nevada County detectives. They can see that Sheila is a young girl with dark hair and pierced ears. She weighs around 100 pounds and looks to be in her 20s. She is only wearing underwear and socks, and she is hogtied with an ace bandage. It does look like the young girl suffered injuries to her head and a slash to her chest, but because of her state of decomposition, the cause of death was undetermined. The medical examiner that had performed the autopsy on Susan would perform the autopsy on Sheila. This was Dr. A.V. Kuna, and he was the medical examiner for both Placer County and Nevada County. However, the two Jane Doe cases were not similar enough for him to ever make the connection. He tried to take Sheila's fingerprints in an attempt to identify her, but the skin slipped right off of her fingers. Instead, he keeps the skin as evidence in case future technology was more advanced for some sort of testing. Unlike Susan's case, detectives actually think they solved Sheila's case pretty quickly. They couldn't identify her, but they were sure that this woman's killer was 42-year-old Benjamin Herbert Boyle. This man was arrested on October 17, 1985, and that's just four months after Sheila's body was found. Benjamin was a truck driver who had a knack for cheating on his wife with women he would pick up on his route, but simply cheating wasn't enough for him when he picks up Gail Lenore Smith. After taking a ride from Benjamin, Gail was raped and murdered. 
police found her body discarded near the Canadian River, and they find her in a fetal position. She has her hands and her legs taped together. This makes police think of the Jane Doe case in Nevada County, where a woman's body was discovered bound. Benjamin was accused of several other abductions and rapes, so he seems like a serial predator. Plus, an FBI agent named Michael Malone would testify at Benjamin's murder trial that there were fibers from Sheila's body that matched a blanket found at his home, at Benjamin's home, and there were fibers that matched his truck, Benjamin's truck, that were on Sheila's body. Sheila was not found far from the town of Truckee, and investigators are able to prove that around the same time she was discovered, Benjamin had been driving a truck through Truckee. So, when he's convicted of Gail's murder and sentenced to death, detectives in Nevada County believe that their Jane Doe case is also solved. Since they couldn't identify who her family might be, they just send a letter to Hazel and Elmer Barber, letting them know that the murder of the girl they found had been solved. Super weird to me that there were, like, claims these fibers match, like, claims from the FBI. Definitely makes me trust that technology less. <laughs> anyway, back at Teresa's apartment, she only has two children left at home with her. Howard and William have moved out while Susan and Sheila were murdered by her, leaving Robert and Terry with their mom. Teresa starts getting paranoid about the closet Sheila died in. She feels like they'll never get rid of the smell, and she worries that authorities will be called by whatever tenants come in next. So Teresa comes up with a plan. She decides that they have to light their apartment on fire. She does not care about all the other people in the complex that might be affected by this. So after moving their stuff into a nearby motel, she tells Terry that it's her job to burn down the apartment. And here's the thing about Teresa. She's so evil. She orchestrates all of this horrible stuff. But then she's also such a coward. She makes her children do all of her dirty work for her, which is even worse. It just, it blows my mind. So on September 29th, 1986, Terry puts gloves on and she uses three bottles of charcoal lighter fluid inside the apartment. She lights a match, she throws it, and then she climbs out of the back window. She starts running down the street to meet Teresa. What they didn't plan for was that the fire department had a super quick response time, so the fire barely spreads before they're able to put it out. Like, they were so quick that as Teresa was running down the road to her mom's car, she actually sees the fire truck passing her heading towards the complex. There is barely any damage inside, and the linen closet was not even touched. Teresa was so desperate to get rid of it and her plan did not work. This actually makes Teresa look way more suspicious and the fire is now being investigated. They find her at the motel and she tells the police, you know, it must have been my older son Howard. Like he's been moved out for a while. He, he causes a lot of trouble. He must have come back and set my apartment on fire. Well, Police are able to confirm that this is a lie because Howard has a pretty solid alibi. He was actually in jail at the time this fire happened. 
So Teresa goes from one motel to another, and then the investigation actually just fizzles out. Terry's mom is furious with her though. She says that Terry didn't light the apartment on fire the right way, and it's her fault that Teresa is now being questioned by police. Teresa gets so angry that she actually takes a knife and she holds it to Terry. This was finally enough to push Terry into fighting back. For the first time ever, she swears at her mom, get your effing hands off of me. With that, Terry backs away, leaving the apartment, and she would never come back. Robert is the lone child left with Teresa. They move around a few times. Teresa tries to get her other sons to come home, but they say absolutely the heck not. Once Teresa's children escape, it doesn't matter how tough things get for them on the outside, they never want to be trapped inside her home again. Teresa starts becoming paranoid about California ending up underwater after a big storm. She's always going off on these different rants, right? Like she's very paranoid about everything. So she moves herself and Robert to Reno, Nevada. It's here that Robert starts his life of being in and out of jail. First, he is arrested for prowling while he is looking for drugs in someone else's car. Next, he is arrested for breaking into a school with his friends. And he can't really keep a job. And this has Teresa freaking out because she expects him to pay their bills. When they had first moved there, Robert was only 17 years old. But he's passing himself off as about 30 years old to potential employers. His mom had kept some military paperwork from her old boyfriend, Ron Bullington. Remember Ron number two? Well, she uses these to help Robert steal Ron's identity, Ron 2's identity. He gets a social security card. He gets like a birth certificate. It's wild. So Teresa actually uses this as a way later to try and get Robert fired from a job. She had told his boss this. She, she was like, hey, he's using a fake identity. But what's funny is the boss didn't actually care. They like looked at Robert and they're like, okay, do you still like want your job though? He said, yeah. And they're like, okay. They probably could see his mom was a little batshit crazy. Anyway, after some time of being in Reno, Teresa comes home one day with this bruise on her arm. She shows it to Robert and she's like, I was kidnapped and I know you set it up and you were trying to get rid of me. He had thought about getting an apartment with a friend before this and the plans had fallen through because Teresa had an absolute meltdown about it. And now they're like living in this apartment together even though he had wanted to move out, but he didn't because of her. And now Teresa is saying that he wanted her kidnapped to get rid of her. So she's like, screw you, Robert. You did this to me. They hurt my arm in the process. I'm moving out now. The next day, she has the audacity to even bring the police with her to gather her things, as if Robert is a danger to her. And while she's packing up, she is straight up trying to pick a fight with Robert right in front of the police. But he's lived with this his entire life, so he doesn't take the bait. Teresa leaves and Robert actually never sees her again. In 1989, Robert is arrested for burglary. Once he is released, he is arrested again for possessing a firearm and for having meth on him. 
1991, he goes to prison again for burglary. He's out on parole when he makes an awful decision. On November 7th, 1991, the Reds Place Cocktail Lounge is being burglarized by three men. Robert is one of them. But they didn't only steal the money. 36-year-old Robert Arthur Ward is bartending on this night, and he is shot execution-style in the process. Fingerprints are found at the bar, tying at least two of the men to the crime. Robert and one of his buddies are living in a trailer just a little more than two miles away from the cocktail lounge. They're arrested there at the trailer. Robert takes a plea deal to testify against the third man involved, and in exchange for his testimony, the death penalty would be taken off the table. The third man is William Wessenberg, who was actually said to have planned the entire attack because one week before the crime, he had been fired by Robert Ward from the cocktail lounge. William never ends up being charged. Robert is sentenced to 15 years in the Nevada Maximum Security Prison. So that's terribly sad that he is involved in the murder of Robert Ward. Very disappointing. And then going back to Terry, Terry had walked away from her mom on that day she holds the knife to her and she ends up moving in with a man that becomes her boyfriend. His name is John and with Terry's newfound freedom, she's partying hard for about three months straight. The landlord actually ends up kicking them out. So she starts couch surfing and just moving around house to house. An older woman that Terry became close with ends up calling Child Protective Services because she's really worried about this young girl who seems to have no parental figure taking care of her. Terry is picked up and she's taken to the receiving home, which I mentioned in our last episode that Terry said the receiving home was hell inside. So she goes from this home and then into foster care and she uses her foster family to help her contact her dad, Bob Knorr. By this time in his life, he had divorced his second wife, Georgia, in 1985, and now he is married to his third wife, who actually has a daughter that is also Terry's age. So he agrees to have Terry come and live with them. He's excited to reconnect when he picks her up, and he's asking her about all the other kids, but Terry avoids the subject. She says she's not sure where her brothers moved, and she thinks Susan moved to Alaska. She knows Susan was murdered, but she's too scared to tell her dad this. While she's living there, Bob notices some worrisome behavior. Terry was constantly lying to him and his wife, and she had a pretty big attitude. She didn't like being told what to do, and she loved to tell her newfound stepsister all about sex. Bob is like, okay, Missy, we've got rules in this house. No more acting like this. There are definitely some boundaries and rules you're going to have to follow while you live here. But this doesn't sit well with Terry. Just days after setting stipulations to live in his home, Terry has ran away with a new boyfriend named Gary. Soon after, she actually sees her mom and Robert in town. This is so random, but she yells out to them and Teresa actually ignores her until Terry runs after her and they come face to face. And then Teresa's like, oh, Terry, it's you. You know, let me take you out to eat. 
Well, Terry is with some of her roommates at this time, but they agree to go out and eat. They all end up getting drunk together and Teresa gets super weird. She starts going off on religious rants and she ends up having sex with one of Terry's male roommates. Robert and Teresa actually sleep over at Terry's place, but Teresa wakes Robert up early in the morning. She's in a tizzy and she's like, we got to get out of here. Again, so random and such a weird thing. Terry was mad that her mom had sex with her roommate and she was embarrassed about how Teresa acted. Then, you know, she didn't really want anything to do with her mom before this. It was probably like she saw her. She thought, what if they could have a relationship? But clearly that would have never worked out. So Terry ends up being in and out of jail for drugs and other things. Each time she actually makes mention about her life as a child to police officers and other inmates. And she tells them like, my mom murdered my sisters. Like I came from a really bad background, but she was always written off by officers. They thought she was high or crazy. Her life was a mess. She wore the same clothes every day and she often had nowhere to go. So people just didn't think she was mentally there, I guess. They're just they're just not taking her seriously. So she ends up meeting a man named Dennis Roper, and he convinces her to move out to Salt Lake City, Utah. Dennis was an abusive asshole. He was always beating her, but she was used to this. She thought this is what love does. Aside from the tattoo on her ankle that reads classic bitch and another one on her Um, another tattoo of her name on her shoulder. Dennis also has her get a tattoo across her butt cheek that says property of DRK. So yeah, like Dennis is just a real piece of work, you guys. And the beatings from Dennis become so bad that Teresa is starting to fear for her life. So when he breaks her nose, she makes a break for it. She checks in at a woman's center and she calls the police on him. It turns out he was already wanted for check fraud, so he's arrested and sent to prison. This is when she meets Michael Groves. He is a man who goes to the Mormon church. Remember, she's in Utah now, so what can you expect? And as we know from part one, Teresa would have an absolute heart attack about this because, remember, she thinks they're a bunch of witches. Anyway... Terry gets sober after marrying Michael, even though he he does drink alcohol, but she would relapse here and there with the memories of her sister's brutal murders haunting her. She tells Michael about her sisters and she tells him that she wants to die so badly so that she can just be with them. She's not afraid of dying. She just doesn't want to be in pain when she goes. Michael is worried about his wife, but he's not sure he even believes this bizarre story about having two murdered sisters. She starts confiding in more and more people. She tells the ex-wife of Michael's friend, and this ex-wife is like, girl, you need to call the police. This woman actually had a policeman ex-boyfriend, so she relays the info to him, who tells his police chief, Paul Howard. Paul says that the tell is pretty unbelievable, but he will definitely look into it. So he writes a letter to Lieutenant Ken Walker in California. This letter is dated for September 5th, 1990. And he writes saying that there is a woman named Terry. She says that her sisters have been murdered and she has described where these bodies have been dumped. 
but Lieutenant Walker responds saying that they didn't have any bodies that match Terry's story. So Chief Paul Howard in Utah relays this information to Terry, and it confirms to Michael that his wife is a liar. He ends up making Terry feel terrible by calling her a liar to her face, and he tells her that she's looking for attention. Eventually, Terry and Michael divorce. By this time, Dennis is out of prison, so she gets back together with him and they get married. Although this marriage would end up being void because Terry's divorce to Michael hadn't been finalized by the time she marries Dennis, and his time in prison really did not change him. He was abusive as ever. Terry ends up pregnant in this relationship, but Dennis beats her so badly one day that she loses the baby. Terry blames herself for a lot of the toxicity in her relationships. Sadly, she didn't have much of a shot to grow up and be a completely normal functioning adult because like her brothers, she was a product of her environment. Terry worried because she knew she could also manipulate and have abusive tendencies in her relationships. She could see her mom inside herself, but she fought hard to bury that piece of her. Terry and Dennis end up splitting up, so she moves back to Utah and remarries Michael for a second time. They're living together at his parents' house in Sandy, Utah by 1993. She continues to struggle with the ghosts of her past and the fact that no one believes her. Everyone thought she was so crazy that even she starts to question herself. But one night in October of 1993, she's alone at home and she's getting drunk. She's crying to herself about all the memories she can't escape. She was devastated this night because her and Michael had gotten in yet another fight about all of it. And he had stormed off telling her she was a liar and to stop repeating this bullshit story. Well, Terry decides that night she's going to wind down and watch America's Most Wanted. And there was something about it that gave her the courage to do something about her sister's murders. Bawling, she calls the tip line listed on the show. But they're like, ma'am, we're sorry, but we only accept tips about cases that are being investigated. The crime you're talking about sounds like it's never been investigated. So the operator directs her to contact a detective from the county where the crimes took place. The woman on the phone even helps her narrow down which county this might be. Based on Terry's description of the area and that the body was dumped near Donner Summit, she's told that it sounds like the crime took place in Nevada County. She calls, but the only homicide detective for Nevada County is out of the office. So she leaves a message for Detective Ron Perea. When he hears Terry's strange story about her two murdered sisters, he is intrigued. Nevada County didn't have two bodies that seemed to match what she described, but they did have one. He thought that he should check with Placer County about any Jane Doe cases they might have. So he calls over and reaches Detective John Fitzgerald, who was on the scene the morning Susan was discovered. Terry ends up in touch with John Fitzgerald, who listened to her speak with a shaky voice. Immediately, he felt that she was telling the truth. She was emotional and she had so much information. She described that Susan was burned. She was 17. She was starved and she was stuffed in a box. The story was just something you could not make up. When she realizes that he believes her, she weeps. 
telling him that no one has believed her for all of these years, not even her own husband. John says, quote, You can tell your husband this. I found a 17-year-old female burning near Squaw Creek on July 17, 1984. I believe she was your sister. Terry ends up describing an antique wedding ring that Susan was wearing when she died. John Fitzgerald confirmed that this ring was found on the body of his Jane Doe. Following the confirmation, John Fitzgerald and fellow detective Johnny Smith fly to Salt Lake City, Utah for an interview with Terry. Teresa was overwhelmed with conflicting emotions. On one hand, she felt the burden lift off her shoulders. It felt good that someone was finally listening to her and validating the childhood she endured. On the other hand, Terry felt extreme guilt by betraying her mother, a person she thought she had loved. It's the only mom she ever knew. One week later, the Placer County District Attorney files murder charges against Teresa Jimmy Cross, William Robert Knorr, and Robert Wallace Knorr Jr. Both William and Robert were easy to track down. William was not in hiding. He was married at this time in California still, and he was working a steady job. So when officers first come to his place of work and tell him that they're asking questions about a murder investigation, his first thoughts go to his Aunt Rosemary. But when he's told that they have a warrant for his arrest, he knows this is about his sister's. He tells police that he hadn't talked to his loser of a family in forever, and he's tried to forget the way he grew up and how abusive his mother was and how she would pin the children against each other. In the beginning, he is reluctant to discuss the murders with police. He had been conditioned by his mom that if she's going down, he's going with her. William had reconnected with Howard in adulthood, and they had bonded over talk of how terrible their mom was to them. Howard even asks William if he knew what happened to their sisters because he feared their mom had killed them. But William told Howard that he thought his sisters ran away to Alaska. This is the same thing he told his dad, Bob Knorr, when they reconnect. And remember, this is the same thing Terry had told Bob. I'm sure it's what Teresa had told them to say if anyone asked questions. But as the interrogation continues, William breaks. He tells investigators about Susan and Sheila's murder and how he was there for the disposal of each sister. But he can't tell them where his mom might be because like Terry, he hadn't spoken to her in years. Robert was likely the easiest to track down because we know he is serving a 15-year sentence in a Nevada prison for the murder he was involved in. He also tells police that he hasn't seen his mom since she walked out on him in Reno. Teresa was not as easy to find as her son's, but this case was so bizarre that police couldn't keep the story from running in the media before they track her down. Two days after William is booked into a California jail, the news breaks. On November 6, 1993, an article in the Sacramento Bee is published titled, Mother Saw in Grizzly Slayings, Two Daughters Burned and Starved. By this time, Teresa was 47 years old. But where was she? While police work tirelessly to find her before she can go deeper into hiding, Terry decides to go for an interview at a local news station there in Utah where she's living. 
She's talking with the KUTV News in Salt Lake City. The interview is broadcasted and Terry tells the world about her monster of a mother, saying that her mom was a sick person who had no right to take her sisters away. What no one realized during this interview is that a home health nurse in her late 40s who had a knack for wearing wigs was watching this news. This nurse was, of course, Teresa Cross. She's living in the home of Bud Sullivan and taking full-time care of his 89-year-old mom, Alice Sullivan. Teresa had been an exceptional nursing aide for his mom, so although she was a little odd, he trusted her. That's why he agreed to give Teresa a $4,600 advance on pay. She asked him for this the day after Terry goes on KUTV News, but she tells Bill that she needs it to pay off some back taxes. He figures this is no big deal. Teresa maybe had taken off before for an extended period of time, and he did think she lied a lot, but for some reason he still liked her because she provided good care to Alice and she always returned after her disappearances. What Bill could have never prepared for was that Teresa's job caring for his mom would come to an end when she is arrested for the murders of her two daughters. But what's more shocking is that Teresa lived with the Sullivans just minutes away from the KUTV news station in Utah. Somehow, Teresa and her daughter Terry both ended up in Utah and for years lived a mere 25 miles away from each other but neither of them knew that the other was there. Teresa had left Reno and worked for years as a home health nurse for multiple families who found her weird, but also nice. She disguised herself by wearing a bunch of different wigs. She'd even lie and say they were her real hair, but all of her employers say it was very clear she was wearing wigs. So, detectives, they do end up finding Teresa after using DMV records to track down a driver's license she obtained in Bountiful, Utah. Police go to Bill Sullivan's home and simply knock on the door. It's Teresa who answers. She says that it's only her and an elderly client of hers, so she's like, look, before I'm arrested, do you mind if I go inside and contact someone to come care for my client? They say sure, but they also have a feeling she would try and flee. One of the officers walks to the backyard where he catches Teresa slipping out of the back door. She's arrested and booked into the Salt Lake City jail where she fights her extradition. Once they're able to have her transferred to Sacramento, John Fitzgerald flies back to retrieve her on December 18, 1993. She tells him that she has only one request. She must be driven to California or taken by train because, you know, she has a bad sinus infection and this was just not a time for her to be on a plane. So John handcuffs her and he drives her to the airport where they board a flight to Sacramento. Defense attorneys argue that Robert and William shouldn't even be charged as adults because they were minors at the time these murders occurred. But they were adults now, so Judge J. Richard determines that they cannot be sent to a juvenile prison now that they're over 18. They're going to have to be charged as adults. William is able to be released on bond for $15,000, and his marriage just couldn't survive the arrest, so he is soon divorced. Robert continues to stay in the Nevada prison while he is charged, but Teresa is brought into the same courtroom as William when they're being arraigned. 
he becomes visibly shaken. He looks down at the floor and ultimately he's escorted out of the room because he's so upset seeing his mom again. Bob Knorr came to the courthouse and he screams to Teresa that he hopes she rots in hell for what she did to his children. He would be seen crying multiple times through these hearings. On January 1st, 1994, Teresa Jimmy Cross pleads not guilty to the charges of murder, conspiracy to commit murder, multiple murders, and murder by torture. On August 12, 1994, the cases are moved to Sacramento County after jurisdiction arguments keep happening since Susan was found in Placer County and Sheila was found in Nevada County. Both Robert and William take plea deals to testify against their mom. They plead guilty to accessory to murder. Robert is sentenced to three years on top of the 15-year sentence he is already serving, and William is sentenced to a three-year suspended sentence, meaning he won't have to serve any jail time unless he gets in trouble again. He was also ordered to five years of probation and court-mandated therapy. William has seemed to continue on to live a crime-free life. In the documentary he did just a few years ago with Evil Lives Here, he said at that time he was married and he has a daughter. He's tried to break that generational trauma. He says he works hard to be the parent he never had, and he jokingly says that he's pretty sure his daughter does not hate him, and she actually thinks he's okay. So, He's been pretty quiet since all of this. And then Robert would finish his prison sentence and he had dreams to enroll in college classes one day. He would have been eligible for parole in 2001 when he was in his early 30s. And I'm not sure where his life is at now, but he does seem to have gone back to prison later on for child pornography charges. On October 17, 1995, Teresa finally goes to trial. She had tried to get an insanity defense, but the psychiatrist had opposing views. Three different doctors examined her, and while one believed she had multiple personality disorder, the other two were like, no, she's fine. In fact, she's just a narcissist who only cares about herself and what she believes is best for her own well-being. Teresa had lost almost 50 pounds in prison after starving herself before trial. The prosecutor is John O'Mara and the defense attorney is Hamilton Hintz. Presiding over the case is Judge Ridgway. The defense argues that Teresa was only raising her kids the best she could and it's because she was still a kid herself when she became a mother at the young age of 17 years old but that's no excuse. I became a mother when I was 20 years old, and I can guarantee you I would never do anything close to what Teresa did. Robert, he writes a letter from prison about how depraved his mom was. He explained that she tortured all of his siblings mentally and physically through many years, saying she, quote, killed them over and over again. He ends up by saying that she sentenced all of her children to a life sentence as they dealt with their trauma. In the middle of trial, Teresa catches wind that both of her sons have agreed to testify against her. She finally decides to plead guilty in exchange for taking the death penalty off the table. At 49 years old, Teresa was sentenced to two life sentences. She would be eligible for parole after 32 years. 
And from where we are today, that's not far. She could be paroled in 2027. She's serving her time in in the California Institution for Women. 2027 is like four years away from now. So I would really like us to not let her parole happen because even though she will be like 80, 81, I just don't think she should ever be let out of prison for what she did to Susan and Sheila. And following her conviction, police actually reopen Rosemary's murder investigation because they just think they should now that her sister was sentenced and convicted for these like other horrible murders. And they don't solve Rosemary's murder, but they do determine that Teresa was not involved in her sister's murder. The youngest daughter of Teresa Cross went on to struggle after turning her mom in. She moves state to state. She continues to be in and out of jail on charges like drunk driving. And she occasionally makes appearances on talk shows to discuss her family and the murders of her sisters. She wouldn't really reconnect with William or Howard, but her and Robert would write to each other while he was in prison. She married a few times, ultimately taking on the name Terry Walker. Terry told the author of Mother's Day that she feared turning out like her mom. She said, quote, I might be trash like my mother, but by God, I know what's right. That's really sad to me. You can tell a lot of them, like, blame themselves and see, like, negative things about themselves. And it's just... Like, I hate her saying she's trash like her mother because she wasn't. She was a much better person than her mom ever could have been, even through her struggles. Terry was leaps and bounds beyond Teresa. Anyway, none of Teresa Cross's daughters lived long lives. Terry dies on December 11, 2011 at 41 years old. Bob Knorr was able to find Susan's unmarked grave where she had been buried by the county she was found in. He bought his daughter a headstone. Susan Marlene Knorr and Sheila Gay Sanders stood no chance against a woman who doesn't even deserve the title of mother. Being a mother is a sacred role. A mother's natural instinct is to protect their babies. If you are one, you know what I'm talking about. That mom anxiety is so real. We think about our children's well-being constantly. Being a mom is something to be proud of, and providing for our children the best that we can is our duty. I wish I could go back in time and scoop Susan and Sheila up and just bring them home with me. Teresa might be reported as these kids' mom. I even use those words to describe her through our episode, just so that it's not confusing. But Teresa is no mother. She never deserved to be called mom. She was only a monster. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Today we had no co-hosts, but we will have a palate cleanser given by Charlie Waters. Make sure to follow us on our social media and share this episode with your friends and family. Hi, I'm 
Charlie Waters, and I'm going to give you a palate cleanser about elephants. I did a research about elephants at school, and did you know that elephants spank their babies when their trunks when they're being naughty? And also, um, elephants are so intelligent. Bye. Have a great day. For those of you that don't know, April is actually National Child Abuse Prevention Month. And if you've listened to our podcast for a long time, you've probably been able to catch on that preventing child abuse and trying to reduce that in this world is one of the causes most near and dear to my heart. I cover a lot of child abuse cases, even though they are the toughest for me to talk about, but because I deserve these children, deserve a voice, and deserve to have their stories heard, and hopefully we can help reduce these things happening in the future. So National Child Abuse Prevention Month recognizes the importance of families and communities working together to prevent child abuse and neglect. So with that, the organization I'm going to highlight today is one that I have already shared multiple times before, but it's one that I love. You can visit the website www.preventchildabuse.org. And this is where you can find Prevent Child Abuse America. I highly encourage you to go to their website, learn more about them, learn more about their cause. They have different chapters in different states. You can volunteer, you can donate, you can just look through their testimonials. It is a incredible an an incredible organization and I think that we should all be involved in it. We've got to save these babies. We've got to save these babies. Child abuse is an epidemic and it should not be. It hurts my heart and this is something I highly encourage you to do, especially after consuming content like this.